Let's welcome up Pastor Mike this morning. This week, um, the news was very distressing. A um, couple of things that drew attention or my attention. Uh, just the continued violence of the killings that took place in a church in Texas, and it's not the first of killings that have taken place. There's a violence, and even as a church, we're thinking through now, how do we keep our people safe? How do we keep our people secure? We're working on a plan for, you know, if, we, if anything should happen here. And then the other thing was just the crushing number of people coming forward who have been sexually abused and harassed and raped and all manner of things from people who are in power, using that power to exploit or to, uh, to destroy even the life of someone else. And as, you, as I'm reading that and as we're studying through this letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians, and as we come to the passage we're going to read in just a few minutes, the same issues were there. As a matter of fact, he details out in the, letter, the verses we're about to read, he details out exactly what the news said this week. There was sexual immorality, uh, exploitation, people were treated as property. Um, there was violence, he says malice, anger, and bitterness, which led to violence. There was an incredible, in this, even in this church, there was racial tension between uh, different cultures and different races that came together in the church. So everything that we're dealing with today and that we see in our lives, our society, was happening in Colossae when uh, Paul wrote this letter. <laughs> the only difference is uh, they didn't have a 24-hour news service like we have, but, so that you, it's in your face all the time, it seems like. But the remedy is still the same. Because the, the cause is still the same. The cause is still sin, and the remedy is still the gospel. And we've been looking at this, and we're going to take it a step further into our own personal experience of Christ, but it's, it's still this equation. Me plus Jesus equals complete. Or me plus Jesus equals fullness. Um, I want you to remember that the people he's writing to, they were suffering through all kinds of turmoil. But the guy writing, Paul himself, is in prison. He's not even in control of his own life. And yet he is writing to them about his encounter and experience with fullness. You see, a fullness that goes away when your circumstances change is not fullness. A fullness that makes you an overcomer instead of being overcome. Now, that's a fullness. So I like it when you read the scripture with me. I like it that we as a church are a church of the word. And when we read out loud together, I think something happens. And so let's, it's kind of a lengthy passage. If you get tired, just rest. We'll keep going. Um, let's read God's word out loud together. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must, must, must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is a very, very rich passage. It's full of truth and amazing statements. Uh, we could spend time on each verse, but we're going to look at it today in an overarching way. And I believe the focus comes around verse 15, where he begins to talk about the therefore, and, and he's summing it up, and he's saying, uh, because of all that I've just said to you, here's what I want you to get. So this is the the central intent, or this is the central aim that Paul has, and that aim is this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So I want you to look at your neighbor, and I want you to point at them, and if they'll let you, poke them. And I want you just to say to them, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Do it one more time, you're enjoying that. Now that word, that word is effective just by you saying it. Their spirit is starting to receive this dynamic living word of God for you. In other words, this is the will of God. This is what he wants for you. He wants you in terms of your fullness, in terms of completeness. He wants you to have a foundational peace that is not overcome by your circumstances. So let's talk about what is that peace then. See, he says this not only in Colossians, but he says it in Philippians where he says that the peace of Christ will guard your heart. So here he says, let the peace rule your heart. And then he says in Philippians, let that peace guard your heart. So 
What is Paul saying? It's a really simple thing. You do not produce this peace. You cannot manufacture this peace. It is a peace that exists apart from you. It is a peace that you must receive and you must let work. It is a peace that you receive by faith, not by circumstances. If you've ever said, I will be happy if you don't have peace. If you've ever said, I'll be satisfied when, and you don't have peace. You are, you are experiencing circumstantial peace, which is not the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ cannot be produced. It can only be received. It cannot be, you know, it cannot be, in a sense, something that, that you live one way and have it. For example... The anxious heart does not have the peace of Christ. The angry heart does not have the peace of Christ. Because something has unsettled that heart. So that the peace of Christ is no longer ruling. So that the peace of Christ is no longer guarding. Something has become more important for your life than his peace. And there it is so easy to go and say, I'm not going to let peace rule. I'm going to let my desires rule. I'm going to let my longings rule. I'm going to let my needs rule. And so Paul says, no, let the peace come. In a sense, then he's saying it's not a matter of circumstances. It's really a matter of the heart. It's interesting when you make peace a matter of circumstances, you can blame everybody else. You know, you didn't do what I wanted you to do, so I'm, I'm unhappy. You, this didn't go the way I expected it to go, so therefore I'm angry. And suddenly every single person in your life can block your peace because your peace is circumstantially tied. And it's interesting, friends, when you give away your peace to other people, you don't get it back. They will never do what you want them to do. They will never do enough of what you want them to do. You will always be unsettled. You will always be tied. As a matter of fact, if I spent a little time with most of you, I would immediately be able to figure out what your contradictory desires are. Because on the one hand, you might be saying, I want peace. But on the other hand, you also want control. And as long as you're trying to control the things you have no right or ability to control, you'll never have peace. Because to control what you have no right to control means you have to manipulate. It means you have to try to predestine the outcomes so that they come out the way you want them to. In a way, it's, it's like what Paul said earlier. We have an invisible God. And if you try to make him visible, you will restrict and restrain him to your imagination. In the same way that your future is an invisible future. And when you try to make it visible, you are now restraining your future to what you can predict. So therefore then, everybody in your future is just a slave to your agenda. And if they don't do what you want them to do, then your peace is gone because you're angry, you're upset, you're disappointed, you're deceived, all manner of things. And Paul is explaining here that the true happiness that you're looking for, that true sense of bliss, of, of, of settledness, comes when it's a, an external peace that comes from Christ, 
that then lives in your heart and you cultivate it and you guard it and you love it and you respond to it. But as long as you keep thinking he's your personal assistant to make happen your agenda, then you will have no peace. And there will be things that come into your life that will make you hate God or make you angry with God if you're actually honest about how you feel. And what Paul is saying that unless peace rules in your heart, then compassion won't come forth. If peace doesn't rule, then you will be a racist because you won't want anybody who's taking anything away from you. And you will be self-centered and narcissistic because it's all about me anyway. And so I only have peace when I get my way. And the problem for most of us is we really don't want to be that honest. You know, we'd rather have a superficial peace and not really look inside the skeletons in our closet. And if peace is going to rule, you know who's ruling? The Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is ruling in your life, you know what he's going to do? Right when you think, oh man, I got this together. I've repented of everything I need to repent of. And I've, you know, I've, I've been through soul care. I've been through personal spiritual formation. I've done emotional healing. Man, I am a... I, and he goes, wait a minute. There's a whole other part of this closet that you don't want to look at and is locked. And uh, we're going to go there. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, people don't want to go where peace needs to go. And it's fascinating for me to watch how, how prevalent this is that don't talk to me about this. I remember in my early days doing counseling and people would come in and go, you know, I want to talk about this, but we're not going to talk about this. I was like, then that's the only thing we're going to talk about. <laughs> I went to Africa, my first trip to Africa, and they said, now look, can't talk about sexual immorality. It's just accepted that the pastors are sexually immoral. I went, then that's the only thing we're going to talk about. Because if, they, if the enemy has access through that, then I don't care. I'm not going to say anything else till we deal with that. Because why? Why waste our time? What are we going to talk about when Jesus is going to return and be wrong again? I mean, are we going to talk about speculation and stuff that doesn't matter? When in reality, the, the Father who loves you has sent the Holy Spirit to shine the light into the closet. And if he is not allowed to shine the light in your closet, friends, you're wasting your time. You will not have peace. And by not having peace, you will have a substandard Christianity. Now, this is what that peace looks like in terms of what Paul's talking about, is it's the peace that comes in a supernaturally changed heart. See, if you don't have a supernaturally changed heart, or if you have not acknowledged in coming to Christ that your heart has been supernaturally changed, then all you will have is a morally restrained heart. Now, a morally restrained heart is just another coping mechanism to hide how broken you are. You see, we are living in a day where what's going to come out of all the violence and what's going to come out of all the racism, what's going to come out of all the sexual immorality is there's going to be moral restraint. Because people are looking and saying, it doesn't feel good to get caught. And so there's going to be moral restraint. There's going to be more 
like whiplash, you know, backlash, you know, kind of thing from this where people are just lashing out and saying, you got to stop this and you got to stop that. That's not what Paul does. Paul says a morally restrained heart will never have peace because it's a hidden heart. It's hiding. If you're restraining something, all you've done is put reins on a stallion. It's going to break free at some point because it's still there. Like people say, oh, you know, I'm angry, but I'm not going to show people I'm angry. That's not freedom. I'm full of lust, but I'm not going to act on it. That's not freedom. That's restraint. There is no peace in restraint. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't go out and be unrestrained. That's just stupid. That'll destroy you. Okay, so the best you can do is be restrained, at least be restrained. <laughs> All right, you get me on that? But I hear what I'm saying. That's not biblical. That's not what the Holy Spirit is after. The Holy Spirit is after applying what Jesus has already done for you. Do you, do you hear what he said in Colossians? When you came to Christ and you finally opened the door, he came in and circumcised your heart. He redid your heart. He cut the connections to the world and he connected it to Christ and and to God and all that God is and all the nobility and beauty and strength and power that God has is now connected to you. Do you understand? He didn't just die for you. He loved you so much, you died with him. You didn't just stay in that tomb just like he didn't just stay in that tomb. When he came out of the tomb and was resurrected, he said, I'm bringing you with me. If I were your enemy, you know what I would want? To tell you the best you can have is a morally restrained heart. And then you work and you fail and you feel like a loser. And you feel guilty and you feel ashamed because you're not living up to the template that the enemy has provided for you. Some of us live lives like we're going to the fair. And at the fair, there often is a picture of the strong man with the big muscles and the beauty. And, you know, for laughs, you stick your head in one of those two and you snap a picture of it. And many of us have tried to stick our head into the perfect Christian template. And when our face gets there, we go, this is not me. And so we hide our hearts. And what Paul is saying The Holy Spirit doesn't want you to hide your heart. If you're wrestling with something, He wants to reveal it so He can bring you to a foundational settledness. So that it's not contradictory inside of you, but so that the desires of your heart align with the destiny that God has for you. Every single day of your life, God is calling you from a future that He has planned for you. And it is a desired future. It's not a future of misery. It's the future you were made for. And when you resist and resist and resist, you're taking the long way. The great thing about God is he never gives up on you. Look, when our peace is disrupted and we just look at our circumstances and we start saying this is the cause, then we're failing to realize the disruption is actually revealing what's already in our heart. Everything that happens to you that that seems to produce anxiety or produce anger, it's only a revelation of the brokenness in the heart. The circumstance didn't make it happen. It revealed that it was there. 
And so the work is not to change the world and the people around you so that you're happy with them, but rather to change your own heart and to allow the change that the Spirit is doing to take place. Please remember again, this is not a peace that you produce. It's not a peace that circumstances produce. It is Christ himself indwelling you with all his peace. It's a peace the world cannot give to you. So it's not a general condition, but it's actually this very active peace. Notice what he says in Philippians. He says, the peace of Christ will stand guard. It garrisons, it says, your heart. In other words, it's like a, it's like a sentry that's walking you know, the night watch for you, that, that's covering you and guarding you. And, and, and then he says, and let this peace rule your heart. So this is an active piece where it's at work and whatever it's bringing up, it's bringing up so that you'll have greater peace. So you'll have greater fullness. It's never bringing up your stuff so that you'll be embarrassed or so you'll fail. It's bringing it up because it's time. And now you've said you want to go further. You said you have a hunger for God. You said you realize I want fullness. And he says, in order to have fullness, I have to show you this. It rules. You don't rule, it rules. Which really means he rules. And you begin to submit to that. You begin to surrender to that. The difference between the supernatural heart and the natural heart is like the difference between a mirror. A mirror has no power source of its own. The only time you see anything in the mirror is when something else is before the mirror. If there's light, then the mirror reflects the light. If there's a face, the mirror reflects the face. But if there's nothing there, then the mirror has nothing. And so what happens in the natural heart is it can only be activated by the circumstances of this world and this life. Nothing else in the natural heart can produce a way to guard or to keep it from whatever is happening to it. But when you are supernaturally changed, then now you have a source within you that has overcome the world and therefore allows you to have power to live even above your circumstances. Now that is not to say that pain doesn't hurt if you have a supernatural heart because you're a person, you're not an it or a thing. So pain is real, but it doesn't overcome you. The uh, Bible says that you're going to get angry, but then it says, but then that anger doesn't have to stay and turn into bitterness. The Bible, the Bible says there are things worthy of fear, but make sure that fear doesn't control you because you've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. You may feel fear, but then your, that fear activates the power source in you, the peace that rules you, the peace that guards you, and now, instead of fear controlling, wisdom begins to come out. Caution begins to come out. Let me tell you something. Caution and wisdom are so much better than fear. Fear is just reactionary. Fear makes you flee even in, in when you shouldn't. And caution allows you to count the cost of what's about to happen and then to fully commit yourself. And wisdom says this is how it's going to turn out. It's much better. Am I making sense to you on this? It's so much better. Fear is not your friend. And many of us have given ourselves over to fear and its ugly cousin, anxiety. 
And we have a power source to deal with all of the things in our life by being afraid. Oh, I'm afraid that. Oh, I'm worried that. Oh, I, I'm anxious or whatever it might be. And, and you cannot, friends, live supernaturally in anxiety. You're nothing but a mirror then. And you're a mirror of every bad thing that's happening to you. And when that happens, you receive the depression. You get the anger. You get the hurt. And you don't overcome, but you are overcome. And the interesting thing, if you ever really track somebody who's anxious, even when the thing they fear doesn't happen, the fear doesn't go away. They just find something else to be afraid about. You understand, that's not freedom. And what Paul is saying is there has to be a counter, and the counter has to be supernatural. And he says, this peace of Christ is yours. But it will, only, it will only guard you if you let it rule. If you let something else rule, then you will not have peace. So if I were your enemy, I would keep blinding your eyes to the peace of Christ. Jesus himself said, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. That's the mirror. See, the mirror says, as long as what I'm seeing is good, I feel good. As long as it goes the way I want it to go, then I'll be okay. But you and I, the older we get, you start to realize none of that really works that well. One of the things that, I, mean, I hope you'll take this the right way, but one of the things I recognize is up to 40, you mostly placate your heart. You use things to get over things. For example, you say, well, I don't like this job all that much, but I'm working towards a job I'm really going to love. Or if I just had, you know, if I just get the right soulmate, if I just get the right relationship, if I, you know, if, if we just get this house, if we, if we just get the kids out of diapers, you know, if we just, and, and you're constantly living for tomorrow and placating yourself until you hit about 40 and then your body starts to fall apart. And all that stuff that your desires and all this stuff, you're sitting there going, that stuff, that was horrible. You know, it didn't, didn't really work out the way I did. And then you have this midlife crisis and you go buy a Porsche or something, you know, and, and to regain your youth or whatever it is. But it's because all along the way you've been placating your unsettled heart with cliches. One of, the, one of the ones that fascinates me, and some of you know this is like uh, bug, bugs me, is that people around here, no matter how bad the thing is that just happened to you, will say, it could have been worse. And I'm sitting there going, leave me alone. <laughs> Never talk to me again. One, you're minimizing the pain I'm feeling right now and delegitimizing how hard this is for me, but now you've given me something else to worry about. <laughs> Because if this is bad and your worse is worse, and now I'm feeling the pain of what happened and what could happen, which is straight from hell. And many of you in this room, you know how you protect yourselves? Not with the peace of Christ, but by figuring out what the worst case scenarios are, which is straight from hell. Because you're feeling a pain of a scenario that will not happen but that the enemy has allowed you to envision so you can feel the pain of it, so you can hurt from it, so you can be debilitated by it, so you can dread. 
You understand that you cannot have a placated heart and have peace. It's an active peace that has to be based in truth, and it has to be a peace that comes from outside of you and that is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. So the issue of your life, friends, is how close are you drawing to Jesus? How much are you encountering the living Christ? Because as close as you are to him is how much his peace will radiate in you. So how do I get this? You know, how do I cultivate it in my life? It's possible. You know why I know it's possible? Because Paul asks you to do it. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. It's possible that every single one of you could live in this kind of peace. It's interesting, though, that people who are most invested in moral restraint are less interested in peace because they just want everybody to know how morally restrained they are. Now, they call it being a good Christian, but the reality of it is moral restraint. That's all it is. So they have a hidden heart, and they don't really want you to know how, how deceived they are, but they want you to know how how righteous they appear. People like that are not interested in peace because they got too much investment in the restraint. So hopefully you're broken like me because that doesn't work for me. I'm ashamed that I ever invested in that because on the appearance, when, you're, when you have the appearance of righteousness, there's always a skeleton or 10,000 in the closet. <laughs> So I would, you know, I would be the hardest working pastor and the hardest working like, Christian, the most committed Christian. But I, every single issue that Paul detailed, the lust, the anger, the malice, the competition, the hatred, all of that was deep inside of me. So the spirit who wanted me and who was pursuing me was turning on the light. And I was saying, please don't turn on the light. You know, I, wanna, I want to enjoy my lust. I want to enjoy how angry I am. I want to be us and them and say I'm right and they're wrong. I want all this stuff. And yet there was this other part of me that had been born again. And it was a real real birth in the spirit. And there was that part of me that had a circumcised heart and that had been buried with Christ and had been raised with Christ. And I had to come to the place where I said, I'm going to feed that side. And I'm going to stop feeding this religious spirit. I'm going to stop feeding this, this religiosity. And, and I'm going to get real. And I really was, I was convinced when I got real that I'd lose my wife. And I was convinced when I got real I would lose the church. And I would cease to be a pastor. Because there was a lie that I heard all through my moral restraint is if anybody knows who you really are, they will not love you. Guess what? That doesn't come from God, right? right? That's straight from the pit of hell. It smells like smoke. <laughs> so here's what Paul says. How do you start to cultivate? Well, so the very first start is you have to believe the truth. It begins, the gateway to your heart is what you think. It's what you believe. You see, if you, what you believe is not true, then what you feel will not be real. 
If what you believe is true, then eventually through healing, your feelings will catch up and they will be real. And the issue isn't, friends, just to have an experience, but it's to go all the way to where you begin to say, I, can, I, I sense this peace. I feel this peace. It's a reality to me. Now, I know it's Sunday morning, and I'm going to ask you to think really deeply for these next few steps. Okay, I'm going to ask you to put your thinking caps on, because I really believe you will not have peace if you have not thought this out. Okay, you have two sides of your brain. You have an analytical side, and you have an experiential side. You have a side that, that is creative and, and emotional, and you have a side that's very analytical and, and needs things to make sense. Guess where all your pain is? Not in the analytical side. It's in the experiential side. So guess what happens with a lot of Christians? They come and they say, I'm, you know, I'm hurting I feel depressed, I feel anxious, I feel angry, whatever it is. And your pastor says, he will memorize a chapter of the Bible. Okay, nothing wrong with that, except that it doesn't fit with the circumstance, because where's the pain? On the other side. side. So now now you've developed more your analytical, so now you can accuse yourself in your own head. Because you're sitting there going, well, the Bible says this, but I feel this, so I must be that. You understand, it has to, Paul is speaking here. The reason he gives this whole pathway is because it has to include the whole you. Amen. And the Holy Spirit wants to be in the middle of all your memories. He wants to be in the middle of all your pain. Jesus doesn't want you to go through one more thing of your life without conscious awareness that he's with you. Amen. Not only is he with you, he's in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. But he doesn't want even one of those memory cells to be autonomous or to be locked away when that might be the memory cell that sets you free. So he wants to bring light to those places. So in this world, what we find is people don't want to think. Often they accuse us as Christians as not being very thoughtful. But the truth is, when people of this world start talking about peace, they immediately cancel out all thought, and they immediately go to technique. No, no, it, you go look at all the books on peace, relieving stress, and it's immediately a strategy or a technique, and it mostly revolves around doing something. For example, balancing work and home and rest and eating and stuff, and, and, and some it's do yoga or, or you know, you're going to eat this because you're not going to eat this anymore and all this stuff. And the truth is, all that technique does is mask again how unsettled the heart is. It's a, it's a new form, not a legalistic Christian form of moral restraint. It's a worldly form of moral restraint. Because then your diet becomes your morality. Your exercise becomes your morality. You see, we are people who need morals. So we will substitute any kind of morals as long as we think it will make us better. Are you tracking with me on this? So the supernatural heart begins to realize, I have to think about this. So what is it that I should think? Let me, let me, let me give you one big thing to think about. If you are a believer, 
If you have given your life to Christ, you know what? The Father looks at you as if you died on the cross. That's what, this, that's what Colossians teaches us. Can you, can you let that in? The Father treats your sin and treats your issues as if you yourself died on that cross for your sins. That is how complete atonement and forgiveness is. And he sees you as if you were raised from that tomb. See, when you grasp that and you let that come in, you've got to realize, what is death? What is death to me? I already died. I died on a cross with Jesus. I am raised again to newness of life, to never... I mean, this earth suit might pass away, but I'm not passing away. You know, when I, when I shuck this suit off, it's a new beginning for me. And this body of death that's limited me and restrained me will restrain me no longer. So I don't look at death and go, I'm so afraid of you. I look at death and say, I already died. You have nothing on me. You know, and then when people come and say, you're not enough of this and you're not enough of that and you don't do this right, and I'm like, so what? I died. I died to your criticism. I died to your condemnation. I rose, and you don't even know who I am. See, that's what Paul says. Don't let anybody condemn you. Don't let anybody disqualify you. Why does he say that? Because people are going to condemn you. They're going to disqualify you. But if you know who knows you, See, the Father knows you. And the Father looks at you not according to all your weaknesses and all your failures. He looks at you as one who died on the cross. He looks at you as one who's raised from the dead. Now, for a lot of Christians, this is scary stuff that I'm saying. It's scary stuff because they don't want to go here. Because they still want to manipulate your morality. And say, well, if you tell them that, they might think they can go out and do this and do that and do all these things. And I'm like, if their heart still is that way, they haven't gotten it. And if all I can do is morally restrain them, the heart is still that way. So it's only when you and I begin to say, man, it is not about learning more information from the Bible. It's about encountering the living Christ. It's about encountering the love the Father has for me. I mean, you look at John. He's the, one of the greatest apostles that ever lived. Do you know what he got all excited about? Not his paycheck. He didn't go, behold, my paycheck. He said, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called sons of God. And it cost him everything for that to happen. I mean, that's where my peace comes from. My peace doesn't come from techniques. My peace comes from knowing that I know that I died with Christ, that I am raised with Christ, that the Father treats me as if I died on that cross. The Father treats me as if I am raised from that tomb. And if I don't believe that, I will be unsettled. You know, you could be a Christian for 80 years and never have peace because you don't settle the big issue. Ah, if you ever get in that place where you're continually asking, does he love me? You have not settled the issue. Yeah. 
And I'm not saying it, it, sometimes it's a struggle. Sometimes there's doubt. Sometimes there's fear. But in the end, if you begin to say, this is what is true. And I, I don't like that kind of Christianity that says that faith makes something true. That's not, that's hocus pocus. See, your faith can only really hold on to something because it is true. And then what's produced when that faith holds on to the truth is a peace that rules and guards your heart. And come what may, you're an overcomer. But it starts with being in your thinking. So if we think, then we open the door for the Holy Spirit to start digging. And a lot of us, we have these amazing experiences with God. We have moments with God. But see, the digging is a lifetime of digging. Um, So he goes after the root issues. He doesn't just go after the surface. And so what Paul is talking about in this passage is really interesting, about lust and anger and all of these things. But he, he pins it on, it's hard to see in, the, in English, but it's easy to see in Greek. He pins it all on a central issue. And the central issue is uh, translated evil desires, and then which is a result of adultery. Uh, not adultery, idolatry, sorry. So evil desires, which is caused by idolatry. All right, so let's try to fixate on that for a minute with me. Now, the, the problem is there's no English equivalent for the word he uses in Greek. He uses a word called epithemia. And the word is a compound word, like many Greek words. It's a compound word, word and it has to do with desire. Okay, so the, the root word is desire. In other words, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to have peace, you got to realize that killing your desires and killing your needs or your, is not Christian, it's not biblical, because as a person, you have needs, and you will always have needs. Okay? But the issue is, what are those mega needs? And the word epi means epic. Epi, it's mega. It's, it's those desires that rule your life, those desires that says, this is what makes me alive. And so what Paul is saying here is that your heart before Christ connected to idolatry, which then empowered and enabled a mega desire inside of you. Now, everything else, your lust, your anger, your your mouse, all those are symptoms of this mega desire. This thing that that I can't live without, this thing that has to happen, or this person, or whatever it is, that I'm sitting there and saying, I have to have this. Now, let me, let me illustrate this a little bit more. I meet a lot of people in the church who have mega attention needs. They can never seem to get enough attention. Okay, so when you look at that, your, your temptation is to say, there's another church for you. There's another place. You're toxic. Nobody can make you happy. Let me give you the address of a pastor I don't really like. And here, and there you go. Okay, let's just be really honest, all right? Let's be really honest, all right? Because, I mean, it's toxic. It's extra grace required. It's difficult. But, but what happens is a lot of times, all that is is symptom. 
And we're trying to deal with the symptom and say, please restrain yourself. You know, I can only meet with you once a day, you know, and uh, you can only call me before 10 o'clock or, you know, all that kind of stuff. He said, we're dealing with symptoms. What's the Holy Spirit doing? He's raising up the root. See, the issue is that this is a person who has a legitimate need for attention, which every human does. If you don't have attention, you won't, you won't flourish. You'll die. Your soul will die. You are made. You need people to interact with you. This is a real need. But when it becomes a mega need, now it's a black hole. Now it's toxic. Now no one can fill that. Now some people get very sophisticated with their mega needs. And they know, i gotta, I got to restrain this. I can't let people know how desperate I am for their, for their attention, for fame, for celebrity. So, I, so you figure out how to become indispensable with people, and you're, you sophisticate it. Now, some people in that mega need, they're not sophisticated, and some people in their mega need, they become perfectionists. They become workaholics. You know? And then if nothing satisfies the mega need, then I dull the pain. Alcohol, shopping eating, whatever it is, cutting myself. See, every single way that I deal with the pain points to a root epithemia, a root mega desire, longing. See, desires are so important, friends. Listen, when they're in alignment, everything begins to get really, really powerful. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. See, but when it's an epi-need, when it's a... Am I making sense to you? So what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life is he's digging at the root. He's going at this epi-need, this, this, this mega-need. And you don't want him to because your whole life has been around that. Don't, don't make me stop working. I don't know who I am if I can't perform. You know, don't take away my, don't take away my pain relief. You don't understand how much it hurts that I don't have a relationship, that my marriage isn't good or my kids don't. And everything is centered. And Paul says, this is out of idolatry. Now, why is it out? Will you stay with me on this? Why is it? Because look at, look at how, look how God revealed idolatry. I am the Lord your God, he said. This is, I have that place. And then he said, and because I have that place and because I want you to connect with me, you can't connect with me while cheating with other gods. So what did he say? You shall have no other gods before me. See, what did God say? He's saying there are no atheists. He's saying everybody makes something a god. And so whether it's, you know, you've rejected the God of the Bible, you still have something you say, this is my life. This is my source. And, and worship can be, I give all my time to it. And worship can be, I give all my joy to it. I give all my passion to it. But God says, that's idolatry. And Paul says, wherever there's that idolatry, there is this mega need. And it's not, see, it's not a natural desire for something evil. It's a mega desire for something good. Right. So family can be that. Your children, your job, your friends, you know, whatever it is. And how do you make a test? It's an easy test. If that were taken away from you, would it make you feel like you don't want to live? 
I'm not talking about if if I lose something I care about, I'm going to grieve it. It's going to hurt. But I'm not going to say I can't live anymore. Because if my life, like Paul says, is in Christ, then even if I lose everything, my life is still sourced by God. But if my God is something else, and it's taken away from me, then I don't have any reason to live. See, and many of you, you think, see, you can, get, you can get trapped. You get deceived and think, if I just get that call from God to be in ministry, if I just had this job, if I just had this soul care, this soul mate, if I just had this, if I just, and all of that is revealing the Holy Spirit saying, this is the root of why you're unsuccessful. This is the root of why nothing satisfies you. This is the root of why you're not full. Because the where there's that root, peace cannot rule. The, the mega desire rules, not peace. And you can decide, will I cooperate? Will I let him who knows my future rule, which means getting rid of this mega desire? So Paul says, and I know I'm running out of time, but Paul says, set your heart and mind on. Notice is it possible that Paul, because the Holy Spirit, understood the twofold side of your brain? That it was both the analytical and the experiential? And maybe what he's saying here isn't just that you grit it out and say, okay, I'm not going to lust anymore, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be ang- I'm not angry anymore. <laughs> What's he saying? He's saying, well, you can't just uproot that idol. But you can find something better to replace it. See, the heart's desire can be conquered, but it, it, you have to replace one desire with another. Here's, a, here's what a, one of the great English preachers who wrote a book on this said. He said, Seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear by a process of extinction through reasoning or by the mere force of mental determination. Reason and willpower are not enough. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Here's what happened, I mean, here's what happened to me. Is I had this kind of analytical, intellectual relationship with Jesus, and it wasn't working. And I encountered the living Christ. I remember crying all night long because I, I had that battle going on between that part of me that was full of lust and full of anger and depressed and all kinds of things and that part of me that was born again and I said, Lord, heal me. And I realized that no systematic theology was going to heal me. I realized that no one else's faith was going to heal me. I knew it had to be an immediate encounter with Jesus. And I heard in my spirit, it was could have been audible, but I knew in my spirit, he quoted to me Isaiah, and he said, by my stripes you are healed. And in that moment, I encountered that healing. It wasn't just a, a position, it wasn't just a doctrine, it was the, the healing Christ healing me with his stripes. But it also was this, it was the realization he had already done it. He didn't heal me that April morning in 1993. He healed me on the cross 
of Calvary, when I died with him, I was raised with him, and now my father treats me as if I died on that cross, and as if I am raised from that tomb, and I, there is therefore now no condemnation, and all the condemnation I had now is ruled by the peace of Christ, and all the feeling of disqualification is ruled by the peace of Christ, and when I feel oppressed, I have the authority in the name of Jesus to rule over that too. But it is not information, friends, it's transformation. It is not moral restraint. If all you have right now is a morally restrained heart, then I hope today I'm stirring up in you discontentment with the status quo. Because that's not what you were made for. You were made to have the peace, the settled, so that then a heart of compassion comes forth and a heart of love comes forth. And instead of anger, peace comes forth. Does that have any appeal to you? Then let's stand together. I'm going to get in trouble, but we're going to take a stand. Okay? Now, you may not be used to this, but I'd like you to take your fist. Okay? Like Like you're pounding a pulpit. You know, or you're pounding a desk, whatever it is, that, you, that you're going to take your stand. You know, and, and, and you're going to believe. And right now, maybe it's just obedience to the fact that, that I'm up here, I have a microphone, I'm a pastor, whatever it is. But I find that if you take steps, God will do the rest. Okay? So I want you to pound this with me. I died with Christ. Come on, do it again. I died with Christ. I am raised with Christ. The Father sees me as if I died on that cross and as if I am raised from, from that death. I will not submit to condemnation. I will not let the enemy disqualify me. I will not Resist the work of the Spirit. And I will not live in oppression. Every closet opened. Every secret place not secret. I will not hide my heart from the Holy Spirit. Dig deep in me so that I can look high upon you. My friend Rob, I, I've always said this in one way, but my friend Rob Reamer says, whether or not you believe it's true, it is true. You see, your belief doesn't make something true, but if it's true, you can believe it. But the funny thing is, a lot of times with truth, you don't experience it till you believe it. So even if it's a little opening you're giving today, Here's what makes me weep, friends. That he loved you and me so much that we died with him. I mean, he didn't just pay for my sins. He paid for the power of the sin in my life. He paid for the 
for the status of my life. He, he, he bore the pain, but gave me all the benefits. He bore all the shame and now exalts me. How can I not love him? I've had plenty of people give me the blame. It doesn't feel good. And I've done enough to be blamed. And it doesn't feel good. But to think that the blameless one loved me that much. I never get tired of Jesus, friends. And when he says, let me rule, let the peace that I have rule your hearts, I know it's coming from a friend. We seal what you're doing, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I, we have some people here uh, who will pray with you, some of our staff, our leaders, our prayer ministers. If there's something today like you're feeling, I want to settle this peace issue, whatever it is, would you come up and pray with them and just give them a chance to speak peace in your life? God bless you. We'll see you next, next week.